Morning, everyone. This morning we deal with the last of the seven aspects of what is called the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Typically, people say, well, there are six pieces of armor and then there's prayer. Well, I don't really like that very much. There are six actual pieces of armor that are mentioned, but prayer is as much a part. In fact, these pieces of armor are put on and kept on through prayer. So prayer is really the the atmosphere or the foundation in which all the pieces of armor are to be exercised in our lives. And so prayer isn't the last thing that we just tack on and pray about it, but it is the issue, if you would, that connects all the pieces together and cause all the six pieces that we've already talked about to flow in continuity. So that's what this is about, the prayer. And so Jesus enters the garden, remember, ready for battle. And so this morning we're beginning in Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 39. And going a little farther, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It means distressed in his mind. Mark 14, 33, and I'm going to include some of what Mark and Luke say because I want to make sure we get a better picture. Mark says, and Jesus fell on his face and prayed. And by the way, that fall is not just a one-time thing. But here we have this man coming into the garden moving away from the disciples with three, going a little further in, leaving these three, remember, to pray. He says, watch and pray that you not be entering into temptation. And then Jesus goes a little further aside to pray. And all the descriptions together obviously give us a more full picture. But here we have This man, as we've talked about, already prepared in all the issues that we've discussed over the last several weeks for this battle. He knows that as he enters Gethsemane, he is entering the greatest temptation, the greatest difficulty, the greatest stress, the greatest battle of his entire life. He knows this. This is the crescendo of every act of obedience. This is the crescendo of every thought of obedience. This is the crescendo of everything of obedience of Jesus' life. It crescendos here in the Garden of Eden. And so as he enters, he falls on the ground. He begins to collapse on the ground. And so I don't like this picture of Jesus praying in the garden serenely, his hands against a rock and his hands held up. If you have that, burn it. No, no, it's, it's just not true. It's just not true. It gives an absolute, askewed, false picture of the wrestling match. The wrestling match. This is a divine wrestling match. The greatest wrestling match of all time is happening here. So Paul says, remember, as we have referenced chapter 6 of Ephesians, that Jesus is clad with the full armor of God. Therefore, as a result of that, he is able to wrestle. He is able to enter the wrestling match. And Paul says in verse 18 of Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying what? At all times where? 
in the spirit. In other words, in the location of the spirit. Now, <clears throat> that does not necessarily mean in tongues, in that kind of a thing, as many Pentecostals would say. It means that praying in the Spirit is being led by the Spirit in prayer, praying within the context of uh, acknowledging the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It may or may not have to do with any Pentecostal experience, but basically it is a life of prayer imbued with, infused with, led by, within the context of every single moment of life in the spirit, acknowledging the spirit, submitting to the spirit, walking with the spirit, etc., etc. That's what we are to be about. And that is how Jesus entered the garden. He has done it on our behalf. So this is, there is a lot to say about Jesus' prayer, but I want to emphasize just one aspect of this prayer in Jesus' name, uh, in, in the garden. There's a whole lot to talk about prayer, but I don't want to make this a, an episode about prayer. God uses prayer to change things. We know that. Remember James 4, 2? What does it say? How many, how many of you know James 4, 2 without, how many of you know it? How many know James 4, 2? You ought to know these verses. You have not because you ain't asked. You ain't got because you didn't ask. So James 4, 2, important, important statement about prayer. And so prayer changes things. We know that. But we also know that God uses prayer to change us. The most important aspect is God's use of prayer to change us. As he what? He, as he transforms us by the renewing of our minds as we pray and submit to God and seek his will. Remember, transforming us by the renewing of our minds comes from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. God has given us the highest privilege of wrestling with him. This is a communion. This is a fellowship very often described as a wrestling match. How many of you, how many of us have wrestled with God over issues in our lives? How many of us have wrestled with God as to what we want? Anybody in here wrestle with God as to what you want? And let's hope that that thing is a good thing. So you want someone's healing. You want something to bless. You want whatever. We have wrestled with God. And so our prayer is often a wrestling match. And so our highest privilege of wrestling with him in prayer as to his will. You see, typically our wrestling is about getting him to agree with our will. Now, come on. Come on, come on. Too often our wrestling with God and praying through prayer is our trying to get God into a toehold where he says, I give up, I will give, you my, I will give you what you want. Now, you never want God to give you what you want contrary to his will. Because in Psalms he says, I will give you a what? A drought of the spirit. You never want that. What you want is that his will. So our wrestling is according to his will. And if we don't know it, our wrestling for the understanding and the revelation of his will. As he uses our prayer to wrestle with us as to our wills. And so in prayer, we're often wrestling. And typically there are two wills that are at, uh, wrestling. We're wrestling against God often as to our will. We want our will. And God is wrestling with us to create in us a revelation and an acceptance of his will 
overcoming our will. Galatians, sorry, Genesis 32, 24. Remember Jacob. He's left Laban. That's his father-in-law. That He's lived there a long time, and he has this great entourage of people and servants and family. And he's leaving, and then he see his brother is coming. Remember Esau, the one he tricked out of the inheritance? Remember that? And all Jacob knows is, my goodness, here comes Esau with a whole bunch of people. Esau, I'm sure, is going to try to kill me. Because remember, I cheated him. And so, without going into detail, he splits up the company, la, la, la. But then he is faced with a real critical situation. So what does he do? He wrestles. And the Bible says this in Genesis 32, 24. So Jacob was left alone. He sent everybody out. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. A man wrestled with Jacob. A Jacob wrestled with this man. And so here is a wrestling match where God himself in the person of his son is wrestling with this man, Jacob, to break Jacob of his conniving, uh, what, what, um, manipulation. Uh, there's another word I want for Jacob. What does Jacob mean? It means what? Trickster. Trickster. To break him of this. And so you remember at the, as a result of the wrestling match, the, angel of the Lord, who is, I believe, of the Lord Jesus before the incarnation, strikes Jacob in the sinew of the thigh. Remember that? And Jacob has to limp for the rest of his life. So he has to walk leaning on his staff. A man who is broken of himself, walking now, leaning on the staff And I believe that's somewhat of a picture of the work of Christ at the cross. We can't say it explicitly, but I think that's there. And so God uses this activity to bring his will about in Jacob as Jacob wrestles with this man. And Jacob, if you would, overcomes. He is changed, and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, one who has striven with God and has overcome. So it's in prayer that God wrestles out of us, our wills, and wrestles into us his will. Now, why am I spending all this time? Because I think we have to understand what Jesus is about to encounter in his prayer. So this is a wrestling match in which God is wrestling out of us my will if it's a contrary will to his, my meaning emphasizing my own personal will, and wrestling into us his own will. And we need to enter prayer the same way. Whatever your will is, whatever your desire is, whatever your hope is, whatever your question is, whatever your desire is, whatever your goal is, whatever it is, let's enter prayer not with the presupposition that mine is okay and I'm praying for God to bless me in what I've already decided to do. Right? So much of prayer is this. Lord, we've decided to move and we're buying a house over there. I've decided to take that job. Uh, Whatever. Please bless me. Well, you just made God to be serving your idolatry. Well, do you mean living over there is idolatry? Yes, if it hasn't been submitted to the Lord. You mean taking that job is idolatry? Yes, if it's not the Lord's will. Right, Darlene? 
Do you mean to tell me that whatever it is, is idolatry? What's the answer? Yes. And so much of our life, how much of our life now as we think about this is idolatrous and how much of God's mercy is working in our lives. Aren't you glad of that? But we take these issues to God before we make decisions and we go to him and we ask of him. And so often we don't get answers because we are still too preoccupied with what we want. So this is what we need to do. We go to God about a particular question or particular whatever it is. And we ask the Lord, Lord, clear the decks of any and every activity of this issue. I want to clear my mind, clear the decks. Father, I want one thing. I want to hear what you say. I want to hear what you say. Not, you know, Lord, if we do this and that, and I'll go over there because of this, and I want to move in that neighborhood because of the opportunity to evangelize. I mean, we give God all kinds of good reasons. All kinds of good reasons that we should have our own wills. Am I the only one who does this? It's idolatry. It's idolatry, isn't it? Isn't that a strong name, James? But isn't it idolatry? And so God is in the business of wrestling out of us, conforming us to his will through prayer. Now, Jesus enters the garden now dressed in the full armor of God to wrestle with God as to his will, not to change his will. Many people have misread this particular scripture. Jesus enters the garden to wrestle with God as to God's will for the cross. He wants to know and be sure of and clarify, is this your will? He does not enter it against God's will. He does not enter it wanting God to approve of his own will. So he enters the garden as to God's will, not to change his own will. We need not read it that way because if we are, we're reading it wrongly. Jesus enters the battleground of prayer, prepared with the full armor of God. Remember his preparation. We've talked about that for so long. To wrestle against the natural, the natural desires of his humanity in relation to his death on the cross. This is a man. This is a man. We forget about that. This is the son of God who has taken to himself a genuine and real human body and soul. And here we have a man, yes, in whom the nature of the Son of God dwells, but the nature of the Son of God is not infused to the nature of the humanity of this man's humanity. Two distinct natures dwelling in the same person. What a mystery, but without any confusion or without any interchange. And, you know, I'm, you're partaking. How to say this? Just two distinct natures not being confused in the, to one another. And so Jesus is a real man entering the garden, and he enters it knowing what's going to happen because he knows the Scripture, and he's terrified. He's horrified. He's being thrown down. He's collapsing under the weight. We'll see in a moment he's sweating blood. He is desperate in himself. And what is the great struggle? 
I know I know the scriptures. I know what they say about me. I believe the scriptures. I have faith in this God. But I just want to one more time make sure. Is that okay to do that with God? Is that okay to do that with God? I just want to make sure. You see, it's not a matter of lack of faith. People have said, ah, you see, you don't have faith, brother. If you knew the word, you would. Are you kidding? Here is the man of faith himself who is entering this worst scenario a human being could face. The taking on of our sin and incurring the penalty of the curse of death. That's the worst scenario for him. He wants to make sure it's okay for us to pray and make sure that God's will is God's will, even in the face of scriptural clarity. His humanity is wrestling with God's will to make sure, not to change God's will, but to make sure he's in conformity with God's will. That teaches me something anyway. So the battle is this. Will this man obey the will of God where Adam disobeyed the will of God? So you remember, Jesus has entered the garden already knowing. Listen to this scripture in Matthew twenty twenty eight. This is several weeks and months before the garden. Jesus tells the disciples, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knows this. Every beat of this man's heart says, I am here to be the ransom. Every step of this man's walk says, I am here as the ransom. Every syllable of every word out of this man's mouth says, I am here as the ransom for God's people. Over and over and over and over and over, day and night, day and night, year after year. And now he's facing it. Now the reality is here right in front of him. It's been coming, it's been looming larger and larger as we get coming into Jerusalem for the last time. And now here it is right in front of his face. Jesus enters the garden as a man of prayer, fully aware of God's will and purpose for him. Can we keep that in our mind? We're not talking about a man that doesn't know very much of the scripture. However, Jesus also enters as a man with (coughs) human feelings and fears about the impending cross. We cannot and we should not divorce Jesus' humanity. We must remember his humanity is our humanity except for sin. His is a perfect humanity. Ours is a fallen humanity, corrupted. But he still has human weaknesses. Remember, we've talked about this before. This is not the, the, uh, the Superman coming into here. This is a real human being a real human being who is doing this on our behalf and for us. His spirit was indeed willing, but his flesh was asking, is there another way? Is there another way? Therefore, you see, the battle of battles begins. So let's go back to verse 39 and read the rest of it. And going a little farther, 
he began to be greatly distressed. I'm sorry, read the verse again. And troubled. And in Mark, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Jesus enters the garden determined to wage war against the disobedience. And then how does he overcome this? How does he deal with this? He enters the garden knowing the most important thing in all of his ministry. He enters the garden knowing and being secure about the single most important issue of his life. And what is that? His fellowship, his communion with God the Father. That's the single most significant, I believe, part of this prayer. He enters the battlefield knowing that God is his Father. He enters absolutely secure in his relationship and his fellowship with God. We're faced with difficulties all the time. This world doesn't work right. Has anybody found that there are problems in this world and things don't go our way most of the time or too often? And we're moving along and all of a sudden a great thing happens in our life and what are we all of a sudden asking? What are we asking? What? Where is what? Where's God? Why God? And it's okay to ask why, but these are questions that kind of tend to impugn God, call his nature, his character, what? Into some kind of, if, if you really love me, I wouldn't. If you were really caring for me, this would not have. If you were really in control, why did? Do we do that? Yes. And so as a result of that, what that reveals to me, at least to me what it reveals, is that I have insufficient security in my relational fellowship with God. And I need, when I hear those kinds of thoughts, and when I feel that way, I need to remember there is some deficiency in my faith in God. Correct? And so what do I do about it? I ask God to correct or adjust the deficiency. I don't beat myself. I don't bewail. I don't say, oh, how bad I am, and I don't have any faith, God. I'm pooing all that. I just say, Lord, this shows to me that I need some correction, adjustment. Would you deal with whatever the area is in my heart that is somewhat in need of some correction, some adjustment? Jesus doesn't enter that way. Jesus enters absolutely secure in his relational fellowship with God the Father. And so as a result, Jesus takes his feelings and his desires to God in prayer with absolute knowledge and security that God will answer his prayer according to the Father's will. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind. There's no doubt at all. So perhaps Jesus ended with some of these scriptures in mind. I have two scriptures here. They may be in your notes. This is how Jesus enters the garden. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Is that how we enter life? Is that how we enter prayer? Is that the first thought that hits our minds when a problem comes smashing through the front door? 
Amen? Is that my first thought when problems come smashing through the front door? What is my thought? Ah! (laughs) Isn't it? My first thought is that. Rather than, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life, or Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust in him. I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Isn't that how we all enter every issue of life? Now, I think we probably get there, but it may take us a whole lot of whatever's to get there. And sometimes the difficulty really is that some don't really get there. Can we ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I know that issues are coming down the road. I know they're going to come. I mean, today the saints could be defeated. Tomorrow. This is speaking prophetically, (laughs) not pathetically. They could be defeated. I know issues are coming. Can we get that in our minds? John 16, 33 is a promise. In this world you may have, you what? Will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And, and when did Jesus overcome the world? Rose, when? In the garden. Not at the cross. In the garden, he overcame through his obedience. He overcame the world. So can we ask the Lord, I know distress is coming. Please Guard my heart and my mind and my feelings and my responses and remind me immediately, God is my portion. God is my shield. God is my salvation. God is my helper. God is with me. So when the thing hits the fan, our shield is up and we are ready to face this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And it doesn't mean everything's going to go well for us, but it does mean that our souls will be guarded and strengthened. We have to walk this way. So how do, what does Jesus do with his feelings? He confidently takes them to God. Oh, well, I don't want to bother God. This is too trivial. May I say this? There's not a trivial thing. There's not anything so trivial in our life that we cannot take it to God. Can you get that in your mind? How many of you have ever thought, well, I can't bother God with that? There's nothing that is that trivial to God. If it's there, Satan will deal with it to our detriment if we don't take it to God. Something's going to happen with that triviality in our life. Jesus knew that he needed to bring his humanity into conformity with the will of the Father. Therefore, what does he do? He prays. So Jesus prayed. I'm not going to get through this. Maybe I will. Jesus' prayer contains four parts. 
The first part is the address, my father. The second part, the condition, if you are willing, if it be your will. And I put other scriptures in there just to balance it all off. Petition, take or remove this cup from me. And the submission, may your will be done or yet not my will, but yours be done. So let's talk about the first, the address. Jesus begins his prayer how? My father. Now, if we don't get anything else out of what is happening here in the garden, this is the central and most important aspect of Jesus' prayer. My Father. My Father. Now listen to it and just think about it. Let it sink in. Let it sink in. Let's not go too quickly. He is encountering the most hideous and horrible, most terrifying situation that any human or absolutely totality of all humanity collectively could face. What we face is so minuscule compared to this. He's in the worst place as far as being bombarded as to his humanity. He's collapsing on the ground. He's literally, I think, stumbling along. I don't think his breathing is really, you know, there's great distress, great trouble in his heart. The man, remember, Gethsemane is being what? Crushed, crushed, crushed by the weight and the reality of what his decision will bring upon him. This is not a decision, man, if I make this decision, maybe I can get there. This is a decision that he knows when he makes it. Literally, if you would allow me to say this, all hell is coming against him. Not just in a figurative way. The fury of the wrath of God will be poured out upon the sinless Son of God as he has taken to himself our sin as the sin bearer, the great Shechem. And how does he enter this prayer time? How does he enter the fury of the battle against disobedience? My father. My father. Jesus is now under the most extreme pressure of his humanity to the breaking point, collapsing under the pressure. And how does he pray? He says, my father. Jesus cries out to the one who has been his constant companion, his constant leader, his constant helper throughout his life. He knows God. He's walked with God. In his desperation, Jesus goes to the only one he can trust and the only one whom he knows loves him. He approaches the most horrible time with his heart and his mind set on his relationship with his father. He doesn't approach this time with his heart and his mind set on himself primarily. It is, but it's a secondary setting. It is a setting which is submitted to his primary concern and trust. 
and that is my father. He approaches the worst issue of any person set on God, not on himself. Yes, he is concerned in his humanity. Well, certainly he is. We said that. But his concern about his own humanity and what he's going to experience is not his primary issue. His primary issue is God. God's will. God's honor. God's integrity. God's glory. This is what it means to be a person of faith. This is what it means. So let me read this again. He approaches this most terrible time with his heart and his mind set on his relationship with God, his Father. Not on himself as a primary issue. It's secondary. It's there. But his issue about himself is built upon his issue about God. Now, why can Jesus address God as Father during this great trial of faith? How can he do that? How can you do that? How can you enter the garden and not be so preoccupied with what is going on that you start talking about yourself and about what about me and for me and this is what I need and this is what I want and can't you do this and when are you going to do that? Why doesn't he do it that way? Because Jesus has spent his whole life living in fellowship with God as his father. His whole life has been a consummate, consummate relationship of God, of the father and the son. In addressing the God of creation, the God of glory, the God of Israel, the God, the great I am, his father. Jesus has been given the highest privilege and responsibility of any man, of any man. His relationship with God is the most astounding and the most central and significant relationship of Jesus' life. His relationship with God comes first. And not only comes first, but it is preeminent, which means what? It takes first place in all things. His relationship with God. So you see that this man never allows anything of humanity, anything of the needs of other people to in any way infringe upon or to manipulate or detract from or subtract from his relationship with God. So how does he know how to minister to other people? Because God, my father, how does he know where to go? My father. How does he know what to say? My father. How does he know where not to go and what not to do? What's the answer? My father. Do you remember John chapter 11? And they're having cookout, the disciples and Jesus, and a servant comes into among them and he said, look, I've been sent from Bethany, from Mary and Martha, your good friend, Lazarus. Remember the one whom you love. You know, kind of make sure we got it, God. Make sure you know what the deal is. I got to explain these things to you, don't you see? God, you have to remember, has a lot on his mind, and he forgets things, correct? So we have to go into detail with him. Don't you love how we are? (laughs) Lazarus is very ill. You got to come. And they just sit there. And the thing is, we have a ministry need in the church. You've got to go, pastor, right away. Or, remember, no. Well, here's the need. You have evangelism right over there. No. 
well, here's the need to teach something. No, that's not the need. That's not the need. What is the need? That God continue to be in all of these settings and circumstances, what? My Father. Anton, that's the need, isn't it? Nothing else is the need. And as that relationship is my need, and I walk it that way, then that God who is my Father will then begin to direct me and minister to me and through me, etc., etc., and do all according to His great will and power. Correct? The need isn't anything out there. The need is something in my heart in relation to God. Isn't this how we all live? My father. Somebody back there said yes. Imagine being able to rightly address the creator God in such a manner. It was his highest privilege. Why is Jesus able to pray as he is, as he does? Why has this man entered the garden as, you remember we talked last week about Joshua chapter 5, or a few weeks ago, what is it, what, who is this? I think it's 515. Are you for us or against us? And the man with the flame, the sword in his hand says what? Neither, for I am the captain or the commander of the hosts of the Lord. Why can Jesus enter the garden that way? Why can he have confidence? Why does he know for sure that he is going to do the Father's will? Yes, going to ask for clarification or is there any other way? but not contrary to the Father's will, to but make sure of the Father's will. Why can he do this? Why can he walk in life step by step, day by day, never being overcome by anything or anyone, never being manipulated, never in any of these issues, being led by other things or other people? My Father, my Father, this is the power of the prayer. The power of the prayer of Jesus and the power of all of our praying is simply two words. Or you may leave off the mind, whatever. It's simply two words, the very ground and power and sustenance and ability and success and everything else is my Father. Why? Because in those words, Jesus is saying, I am subject to you no matter what. Isn't he saying that? Isn't his submission already announced when he says, my father? Amen. Isn't it already announced? Isn't it already there? And it's not there as a theological kind of a thing. It's there as a heart issue. My life has been lived this way. You are my father. And I am here for you all the way in any and every circumstance. And everything that I do, I proclaim you as my Father. 
And in doing so, he reveals God the Father's glory as no man can do. Therefore, Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Why? My Father. So can we begin to look at our prayer lives and begin to make whatever adjustments we need to so that as we pray and as we live our life, obviously, our lives are lived within one context only. And what is that? God is our Father. Next week, we'll look at the rest of the aspects of Jesus' prayer.